good, good. Let's take a Bible, let's do a little bit of Bible study tonight. Let me just wet my lips before I get going. We are headed to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. We had started this last week, and we were talking about the idea of parenting. And I'm not preaching, preaching these messages. We are doing more of a counseling workshop. And yet we're doing not a single text. We're doing a variety of texts. Uh, when I was in seminary, I was taught that what you need to do is do expository preaching. And I love it. It's far easier than what we're doing here. Uh, because then you just take the text and let the text study it out and then speak. This, to me, is more difficult when you're trying to get principles for a variety of different passages, bring them together, make sure they all complement. And so for me, this takes more work to be doing this, but it's also at times when you get into topics like we've been talking about, your anger, your finances, um, getting, getting over hurts, forgiveness, different things of that sort, that at times it's appropriate for us to do a topical or a textual study of a passage or uh, of a topic. And so we're in this topic on parenting, and last week I tried to get your attention to say, hey, listen, follow with me, because as I illustrated, our, our dad had a gas station, and in that gas station we did repairs on cars, and there was a hoist. And we had to line up those cars perfectly on that hoist, or we would have accidents. We never did. We'd have accidents like people have had in working on vehicles where the car slips off the hoist. And so he was extremely careful, and I said that in that same way, we need to make sure that not our car, but our lives line up with the Word of God. That would elevate us, that would help us, that would make us fruitful. And so when it comes to parenting, what does the Bible say we need to do? And I gave you several principles last week, in the morning and the evening. Just for those who weren't here, let me refresh your minds because it will help us as we continue on. We said that from the Word of God, parenting is the greatest, one of the greatest honors God can give to you. We said when it comes to parenting, the goal needs to to be not raise good kids, but raise godly kids. And we talk about the difference. We said that if you raise godly kids, they will bring great joy to your hearts. We pointed out from the Word of God that every child is needing spiritual training to become a godly child. Left to themselves, it won't happen. Or just if you don't invest the time and energy in training them this way, it's just not going to happen. And so we went on to make this point. That means you need to be purposeful, or should we say intentional, and proactive. You need to determine where do we need to deal with? What do we need to deal with? You need to plan how we're going to be training our kids, and it gets difficult when you have a variety of ages in your home, as many as you know. And then we made this comment, you take the long look. Don't get frustrated. Don't give up. Just because of what happened in this moment, they'll, it'll pan out. It'll work out, Lord willing, as they respond to the gospel and to the Word of God, and they see in your life. And so take the long look. That the we're in this for the long haul, training and building a life. We're not just building something quick. We're building a life. And so it's going to take a lot of work. It's going to take time. But when you're doing that, train up a child in the way he should go, as we pointed out. I understand that that Hebrew in that text, the verbiage and the pronoun is in the child's way. And not just God's way, but taking God's way and saying, what does my child individually personalize? What does he need? What's his personality? What's his gifts? What's his abilities? How does he learn? And we pointed out that in our parenting, in our training, we need to be sensitive to the differences in our children and how they learn, how they respond, how they, what type of disciplines do they need. Not all need the same amount or the same way. And you've been there, you understand exactly what we're talking about. And then we said at number eight, that idea that you still are the greatest influence.
influence. Even though we have a lot of TV, a lot of media, you still are the greatest influence because the Word of God says you have this responsibility. You do the training. So he puts that on you. God's measurement of a successful parent isn't necessarily your kids becoming a banker, a lawyer, a doctor, so they can take care of you and own their own company. That doesn't mean you're successful. The success is, okay, as your children grow up, you know, and they make good choices and whatever their career may be, quite frankly, doesn't make any difference. The successful parent, God would evaluate based upon what did you do? How did you respond when things didn't go quite right? How do you deal with them even as an adult? And so you're allowing for two things here. You're allowing for the free will of the child, but also the child being responsible as they get older for making their own decisions. But the question is, what about you? That's why in First Timothy, when it's talking about the pastor, one that rules well his own house, the idea is one who directs, one who manages. It's one who, how does he respond when there's difficulties in the home? And yet giving leeway for the children to make their own choice. Proverbs 1, my son, if sinners entice thee, consent thou not. He's giving advice, but he understands his child has to make the choice. And he gives good reason for making the right choice. And then we were (coughs) at that point where we were saying, to have godly kids, you've got to be godly yourself. You can't be the traditional hypocrite. You can't be preaching to them, but living a different thing. And so we ended up last week working with principle number 11, and I want to rehearse this where we were last week, Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5, when he deals with family and he deals with work, he's going to talk about husbands. He's going to talk about wives. He's going to talk about parents. He's going to talk about kids, which I remind you that is revolutionary because nobody in those ancient dates wrote to ladies or wrote to kids in this type of a format. So God in his grace is saying, children are important, I'm writing to you. Uh, Wives are important, I'm writing to you. And when he's writing, he's telling them that they each have specific jobs, assignments. That comes from verse 21, beginning this entire passage. After he's just dealt with, be be not drunk with wine where is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Then he says what you need to do, verse 21, submitting yourselves to one another in the fear of God. And we pointed out that that word was a military term. It had the idea that you are being called to get in order, to get in rank. And when you're called to do this, it means you take your spot. You take your position. If all of a sudden you, you see the movies that they say, you oh, call to arms, and people go to their assigned position for defense, let's say. That's what he's saying here is get to your assignment. What is the assignments? They are commands. It is the idea that you do this and you you fulfill your role over and over and over, and you submit yourself. You put yourself in this spot. You find out what it is, every single one of us here, find out what our roles are from God, our assignments, and then we do them. We take our place, we fill in the rank. And so the idea that we talked about several weeks ago, probably months already, the husbands have different assignments to love, to lead, to uh, learn their wives, to live live with their wives, to lift up their wives. We talk that the wives have several different assignments to submit, to respect, to follow, and to be good friends towards their husband. We looked at those texts. So we're now looking at a variety of texts that say, what do you do as a parent? Last week we said, provide a protector. I'm not sure to divide and put them together, but you get the idea that the Word of God says that we as parents are supposed to care for them. The proverbial virtuous woman, she cares for her child. Jesus uses the parable. He says, what person 
listen, what parent, if their child is asking for a stone, uh, bread, is going to give them a stone. If he asks for uh, a fish, you're going to give him a serpent or a snake. And so the implied in Jesus' parable is the idea, or his question, the idea that we're taking care of our kids' physical needs. We're providing and protecting for them. And we understand that when they get to that certain age, that responsibility falls on them taking care of themselves. But so in this idea, we're providing, we're protecting. Some of these roles, I don't think they ever stop. Maybe provide a protector. I'm, you know, they're going to be on their own. They have to take care of those things, and that's a good thing, that they are, leave mom and dad, and they build their own home. And so then my responsibility for those four kids that we had is they have to take care of themselves. But this one, I think, is lifelong. This one of being a promoter. Uh, we didn't touch on this one. But I want you to go with me to a couple different passages that talk about parents cheering on their kids. These are not clearly, you shall cheer on your kids. These are verses that are more implied, subtle, but when you look at them, they're very clear. The first one, 1 Peter. 1 Peter, if you'd turn over there with me. I'm sorry, I mixed up uh, with Titus. Titus. You're headed in the same direction. You're headed over to the book of Titus, and in both First Peter and Titus, they are talking to the ladies and talking about something that the ladies should be doing. So Titus is the one I want, where it talks about the older men are to teach others, and the older ladies are to teach the younger women some things. Now watch what he does in this text, where he's saying, you... And this is, this is a wonderful audience. Some of you are older and no longer parenting, you're grandparenting, or you, you're out of that phase. So this text is extremely important for you to learn so you can teach the younger ladies. Some of you are in the throes of parenting. Some of you are going to be there you know, someday. So this is a wonderful study for all of us in this room where he is saying older ladies teach younger ladies. And you can read that from verse 1 that, where he talks about the idea of being sound doctrine. The old, older men should be sober grave temper. The older woman should likewise become holy, false, uh, not false accusers, teacher of good things. That, verse 4, they may teach the young woman to be sober. To li- Anybody have another word for sober? We think sober today. What do we think? We, we associate it with alcohol. That's not what the word is. That's why I said, does anybody have another translation that might give a different word? Serious? Reverent, yeah. Okay, so it's that idea of not flippant, foolish, but um, focused in that sense of, okay, focusing on her family. They may be to, to be sober. And then it says two odd st- sentences in Scripture. To love their husbands, to love their children. Okay, my, my question is, in teaching these virtues, they're specifically supposed to focus on the idea of, okay, be serious about your, uh, your roles, your assignments. Why would he have to say to these ladies to love their husbands, to love their children? Isn't it innate for wives to love their husbands? You're not, you're not bouncing off that one, okay? Is it just natural? Mothers always love their young. Why would he bother saying this to this Could it be that there's a different cultural practice for family back then? Yes, no? Okay, let's jump back. Let's go back a few thousand years. And let's examine how families operated. 
Okay? Do you remember how in that, in that ancient world, how was it operating in your typical family middle class, for if there was such a thing back then? The typical middle class family, how did, and I'm not talking Jewish. This isn't a Jewish city he's writing to. These are Gentiles, which had a different family formula and how they, how they did uh, family. Diff, the Gentiles were different than the Jews. How was the typical family put together? Arranged marriages. How, who would you arrange your marriage of your kids to? What would be your criteria? Would it be wealth? Would you try to marry your kids up? Okay, is that typically possible back in those cultures? Not generally true. So you would end up marrying your class. You'd be ending up marrying people who not only would be in your class, but what else might they be? Okay, could, it be, could they be distantly related? Why would they choose to marry, you know, second cousins? Because they're weird. No, no. What did, Pooch, was that you? They know, what do you mean by they know them? They would know the family, but also the family would know them, and they would have, let's take family traditions. Would somebody who might be a distant relative have similar family traditions and practices? So there would be more commonality. So you're a young lady. Your dad has decided that he's going to marry you off to somebody. And what's the possibility for knowing this person? When, when might you meet them? You, might, you could be meeting them for the first time if you're, at a, if you're somewhat distanced. Okay, you might be meeting the way Isaac met Rebecca for the first time when she, yeah, when all of a sudden we're married. Hello. Okay, did that happen in ancient days? That marriages were so arranged that all of a sudden somebody is living together who last week they didn't know each other. That was not uncommon. So, let's you put yourselves. This is a passage written to ladies. So, ladies, help the men and, and myself to understand this. You get married to some guy this week. You didn't know him last week. What might be a struggle for you? What does he say? Teach the older woman. Teach, the older woman teach the younger woman to do what? To love their husbands. Why would they have to bother doing that? You married the guy. He... What did you say, Joyce? It could be. Could there be age differences? Could there be, you know, a lack of, I don't want to be with him. Do you think the ladies ever found themselves, I don't want to be with that guy? Is there that possibility? Okay. What was the woman's, the wife's, and I know I'm belaboring this, but I want to make sure, what was their duty as a wife? Obviously, obviously to take care of the household. But more importantly, why did they bother getting married? They want heirs. The men are all about, we want a child, especially a, a son. And so this lady who gets married to this guy she didn't know last week, she's married. Now she's away from her family. It could be a distance, could be short. She's married to this guy, and he's all about having children. 
And in this culture, now we're talking in Titus, we're talking in Crete. We're talking that these people in Crete were known for being liars and cheats. Guess what one of the relationships they would lie and cheat about? Marriage. It was not uncommon that men would have a legal wife who would bear the children, but they also had a mistress on the side. Do you remember what Ephesians is writing? Husbands, love your wife. Why did they have to state that? Every man loves his wife. No, because in that culture, they could be married to a woman who is his legal wife, but he is doing the thing of having a mistress on the side. Good thing that never happens in our world. But in an, in an arranged, pre-arranged marital society, could that happen more frequently even? Because the emotions involved. Okay, so your lady, you got put into this situation. You don't really like, let, let's just say you don't know about this guy, whether you like him or not. You find out that he has a mistress. Okay, or a mistress or two. And he has children by that mistress or two. Could he legally adopt those children and bring them into your household? That could happen. And what would be your duty, legal wife? You have to raise his kids from another woman. Is there, can you think of any possible emotions that might take place by the wives at these, at these times? Why would that be, Jay? Why did you say resentment? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and, and let me add to this. Let me add to this. What also, what also often, often happened to ladies in childbirth? They died. Okay, they didn't, there was a lot of ch- uh, natality death. There was also a lot of uh, uh, wives dying. And uh, some even estimate that a quarter to a third died in childbearing. I mean, that would be a tr- So that means not only is there your first legal wife... But what do you want to do when she's gone? Find a second legal wife, and she may not be raising her kids. She may be raising other people's, other women's kids, and maybe a mistress's kids. So it gets very convoluted. And, uh, and so he's writing to Christian wives, and he's saying, Christian wives, you, you can just decide to walk away from this. No, they couldn't. I mean, in their society. And he isn't concerned about you enduring. He's saying, I want you to work at this. And I want you to learn to learn to love your husbands. And I want you to learn to love the children. It's interesting the wording that he used. Let me see if I can catch up here on our, on our notes uh, that we've already had all these things. So husbands adopt them. They have the blended families. All kinds of feelings. Could be resentment. Okay, it could be there like Jay said. Uh, resistance to the situation. So let's go a step further here. Feelings that might conjure up. They may not like their husbands. They may even re- hate or resent their husbands. Could you see that happening in a prearranged situation? That they, they don't like what he's doing. Can you see, if, if you were a woman and you're, you were put into this relationship by family members and he's got mistresses on the side, could you easily resent him? Oh, you are so noble people. Okay. It, it could, I think it could easily happen. Okay. Do they feel trapped in their marriages and parenting? 
Their feelings of resent there you brought up, Jay, of children who may quickly be elevated. Because if the children are, could they be elevated above the wife, the legal wife in the home? Absolutely. They could get more attention. They could get more care. She could be taken, considered just a provider of making babies, and that's it. And then she's kind of forgotten. And re- resisting investing in kids of mistresses, not treating the kids. Can you imagine if you were a woman and you were raising four kids, one you birthed, the other three were mistresses' wives? Could there be a possibility you might resent those other three children? And you may not treat them exactly the same? Is that, is that at all possible? Okay, so he's writing to them, and he says, okay, ladies, moms, here's the assignment I'm giving you. To love their children. In the Greek, it doesn't say love your children. It says be a children lover, which involves loving how many in the household? All of them, not just yours. And I think that is essential in understanding this text. You be a child lover to all the children in the home. It's the same thing as you be your hus- You be the husband lover. Okay, is the same idea. The word that he uses for loving is the word phileo. That idea is used for you love your husband and you love your kids. What do you remember about phileo? Anything? Somebody back here. It's brotherly love, yes. Yeah, city of brotherly love. It is today. We have two words that are very that are similar. We really. Let me see if I can put it this way. Um, I love Deb. There's an emotional attachment. I can love her without liking her. Is that possible? Can you love somebody but not like what they do? And have a struggle with that relationship. Does that make sense? Okay, you might love a family member, but you don't like them enough that you want to get, along, get together with them a lot. You know, pick some, some cousin or something like that. So the word here for phileo of that idea of love or like, which one do you think it is? The one is emotional. The other one is support. Like is to support. Get behind them. Be a promoter. That's phileo. That's the idea of really like them, that you, you really want to do what's right by them. And so it's the idea of a friendship, a loyalty, a, a devotion, a kindness, a supporter of that person. Learn to love your husband. Get behind your husband. Don't decry him. Don't criticize him. Be a friend to your husband. Be a confidant to him. Don't tear him down in public. Don't, don't resent him. And so he's talking in this passage to the ladies, and it's the idea of you do this over and over to your husband, but you also do it to the kids in the home. All the kids in the home. And, and can, you, can you imagine some young lady even resenting having to be a mom at all? You know, she feels like a child herself if she got, was a child bride, and all of a sudden she's got a child, and it's like you've got to really unconditionally support and be loyal to your husband and also to your children. Unlimited. 
unconditionally. And he's saying basically to the wives back in those days, Christian wives, support your children, promote your children, be, be behind your kids, all of them that are within your care. And so you bring it to modern day in America, that's, we, we struggle with the, with the interpretation application because our world is a different world. Our marriages are, are different arranged. I'm not saying we're arranged better. Okay, but we focus on more of what aspect? The feelings before the relationship. And so that, that feeling of love and affection, and that's what sort. But he's saying, now, wives, I want you to get behind. So the application for us today is still true. You love your kids, but it is possible that you could love your children and still not like them? Is that possible? Yes? Yeah. Is it possible that you love your children, but you don't treat them in a good way? Is that possible? That you, I love my kids, I'll do anything for my kids, and then they turn around and, you dummy, you, and... Is there ever those types of situations? That parents belittle their children, or they do things that harm their children? And so he's talking and he's saying, and it's rare in the Christian community, but it's a good reminder for us to say, okay, how do we promote our kids? How do we get behind? How do we support our kids? Young kids, older kids. How do we do that? Don't, don't focus on being critical. I know you have to correct. There is a difference between correcting and being critical. And so you have to correct. But if you're critical and always finding fault, fault and no encouragement, some of you know exactly what this does. Some of you have raised been raised in homes, and you say, I don't know if my parents really liked me. They never said anything to me about, I'm proud of you. I really, I really appreciate you. For, you never heard those compliments. And you even crave them today. You wish they had done that. And what is the tra- tragedy for those of us who lived in those type of environments? What's the potential tragedy with our kids? We do the, or, or we don't do, by doing the same, we don't do what we wish we had. And he's saying, okay, let's not be critical. Instead of the be, be negative and being down on them, let's be supportive of them. Let love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Let's get behind them. How about not being biased against any of the kids, but positive towards them all? Is there a possibility in a home where there are multiple children that one parent might gravitate towards one child? And that child becomes, common terms, the favorite. Does that ever happen in America? Yes. Okay. Showing favoritism, bad. Belittling, not blessing the kids. Putting down, but uh, not lifting up. Assuming the worst, but hoping for the best. Okay. Uh, we want to be not fault finding, but find the good to mention. Be supportive of that in that sense. Not always complaining they don't do enough. I put this last one in for us who are older. Okay. Is it possible that as we get older, we get cranky? You're all going to say no. You're going to let me own that one all by myself. Okay. We don't want to say it. But do at times older parents put undue pressure on their adult children? Does that ever happen? Yes. Does it ever happen that older parents will try to put a guilt trip on their own adult children to get them to do for them? It happens all the time, folks. They come to for a visit, and it's like, 
It's not, thank you for coming. It's like, well, I wish you were here more often. You only call me every other day. You know, you're only... You know, if you're a friend to somebody and you invited them to your home for Thanksgiving and they said, oh, I'm so sorry, we had other plans. What would you do with that friend? Would you cut them off? Would you hold a grudge against them because they had other plans? Then why do we do that with our adult children? Why do we get ticked at them and then hold a grudge if they don't show up on a holiday because they had other plans made? It doesn't seem right that we should respond that way. I know we're thinking, yeah, but they should be visiting more. They should be doing more for me. Be grateful for what you get instead of being critical over and over again. And remember, you didn't like that when it was being done to you when you were the adult child and your parents were scolding you for not being there more often when you were raising your own family. Does, taking t- does it take time to raise your own family? Does that, does it, does it, is it a 24-7 job for you guys? It was for us. It was more like, you know, 37. Okay. And, and uh, we, we, had this, we had this one experience the one time that really called for us to have a conversation. We, we got to our house after being in Minnesota for seven days. We made the mistake of being there for seven nights. What's the mistake? Our parents lived ten miles apart from each other. Can you see the immediate mistake we made? We were going to end up staying at one of the houses four nights versus three nights. Okay? We didn't get back, and this is a 20-some-hour trip. We didn't get back in our driveway but five minutes. Is that probably about right? And we got a phone call from one of our parents. We're really upset with you. You spent one more night at the other relative's house. Maybe we should have just slept in the car and made it even. That type of stuff, does it irritate? Does it put undue pressure? Okay, so I'm, I'm, I'm on a hobby horse right now just because so many of you folk are having to deal with that that it's just it's frustrating. And so moms, even older moms, we make, make sure we pause and think through of our comments that we made. Okay, what about dads as promoters? Is there any verse that talks to dads specifically about promoting their children? It's, it's an implied passage. Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians 6. Boy, am I not going to get through this study as what I planned. Okay? That's okay. Ephesians chapter 6. Head over to Ephesians 6. You've got you to have the passage open. And, it's, and it talks, it says, Ephesians 6, fathers do what? Well, let, let's back up. He says, children obey your parents and the Lord for this is right. Yes! Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise. Yes, we say, that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. And our thought is, yeah, I brought you into this world. I can take you out. Okay. And then he says, dads, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Do not, do not jump to the second half and forget the first half. He is saying, and he does the same thing in Colossians. Provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. I have some questions here. Right away, right away that comes to mind. Why does he focus on dads? Why do you think he focuses on dads? Why doesn't he say, moms, 
Why does he, why does he say dads? Somebody, you got to be a little bit, I'm deaf. There's a leader. There's a leader. That's a really good answer. Somebody over here? They're the head of the house? Okay. What's that? Could it be that the dads might be more guilty? I don't know if that's the case. I think it's more of the idea that if they're heading up the household, they're doing it, dads be very, very careful. And by the way, have parents been involved in the text already? I I read the verses. Children, obey your parents. So parents are involved here. And maybe it's because of this. The context not only includes parents. Dads are the head of the household. And, And in other passages where it uses patres, it is in English translated parents. People understood it that way even from early centuries. Maybe it could be this. Maybe there's also this. In the Roman world, the fathers had what this called is the patria potestes, the power of the dads. The power of the dads was a legal thing in the Roman society that the dads could literally do this when children were born. What's this mean? We keep the child. We abandon the child or we, we kill the child. Guess which ones would get the thumbs up more often than the others. The boys would get thumbs up, okay? And if there was any type of physical handicap, can you imagine what they would do? Okay, and so he's talking about them. There was also this, uh, this idea that um, the dads could determine, am I going to make you my heir or not? That was that whole, American, we don't understand this. Your kids aren't your heirs. In America, we, are, we have it set, but your kids would not be your heirs until you did what? You adopted them. You went through that legal process. Then they become your, your adopt your heir, not just a biological child, but now you're there, your heir. And that's when Galatians says we are not only sons, but we are also heirs with the father. And so that's b- built upon that culture. And so you might not, dads might not adopt all the kids. They might have favorites. And so could that be frustrating? By the way, was it frustrating in the Old Testament when even some men showed favoritism? Yeah? Do you remember any stories? <laughs> Jacob and Esau. Okay? The mom was, had one favorite, the, and the other was the dad's favorite. And so you have all of this. You have dads. In those societies, you didn't pick your career. You know, who picked your career for you? Your dad. Your dad picked your career. Aren't you, are, don't, do you think we should go back to that? Why not? Can you imagine what your dad might have picked for you? Okay? So this, this, so he's talking to dads, and he's saying fathers. And the word in the original is the idea, stop doing this, which is implying that even in the Christian church, it, it was not only possible, but it's probably happening. That the believers were basically just doing life the way they've always done life. And he's saying, no, there's a newness in Christ even in this relationship. How you deal with your wife, how you deal with your children. Stop treating your children the way the rest of the world treats your children. Treat them as important individuals and stop doing that. And both of the idea in this verse was provoking them. It has the idea of causing them frustration, causing them unnecessary anger. I told you that when we were in China, they, uh, they interpreted this passage to mean never ever Never make your child cry. Never upset your child is the way that they interpreted this idea. Well, then that would mean you should never, ever 
correct your child. You should always give them whatever they want. Or if they, you know, shame on you. If your child goes in the store and says, I want a candy bar, and you say no. And they start crying. In the Chinese culture, they were teaching, you've got to give them the candy bar. What are you doing in raising kids? What are you raising? <laughs> in our woke world, okay, we don't say this, but you and I in the reality world, we're raising a bunch of, you know, brats, selfish, self-centered children. That's not what he's saying here. Don't, don't, don't even go there. Okay, what this is saying is don't cause unnecessary frustrations. The idea is don't create a bad response by treating them poorly, by treating them badly. In what ways... Do parents, dads, parents, what way do we ever cause bad reactions in our kids? That the kids get angry, that the kids resent, get resent, that the kids may want to get rid of your God, that the kids, <clears throat> what, what things might we, might we do that we need to stop doing? Favoritism. Disciplining out of anger. Not keeping your word. In, what do you mean by inconsistency? Okay, so what does that do to the kid? Yeah, they have no idea. So one day, walking and trompsing across the floor that you just mopped, nothing. So that means the next day, what are they going to do? They don't think it's a problem. The next day, their head almost gets taken off. So where does that leave the kid? Somebody said it. Confused. Okay. In what other ways might we dads? I mean, I can give you all plenty of mistakes. What's that? Pick on them. How so? Okay. Okay. Anything else? Thanks, Kevin. Okay. I listed out a few of these things. Okay, just a few. So most of what you've said already, that's there. Um, can no rules be frustrating to a kid? Yeah, okay. Too many rules. Not explaining the rules. The idea of not keeping your word, somebody said. The hypocrisy, your own angry tirades. You spank your child for having a fit and a tantrum, and then what do you do when your team loses? You have a tantrum, and you throw something. Do kids see that stuff? I mean, do kids hear you when they're not even listening? Yes, no? Yeah, okay. So the nagging, one of you mentioned, the name, uh, the belittling, the calling, the favoritism, the making comparisons. Did any of you have a perfect sibling? Or were you the perfect sibling? You were it, okay, okay. Nobody had those perfect siblings? Adam, did you have any perfect siblings? You were it, Adam. You were the one that they always, yeah, you, you were the man. Now, <laughs> I'm teasing you, buddy. But if you're compared in the household, let's take it away from parents. Did you ever go to school and the teacher pegged you based on a, they had a previous family member and they had expectations of you, whether they were good or bad, and you went year after year behind that older sibling? Did, did you like it? Okay. Here's some unrealistic pressures. No time for them. Never complimenting them. 
Can that be frustrating? No expressions of love. How, not knowing if they've ever, if they ever pleased you, if you're ever proud of them. And we say this, we go, well, they know. How do they know if you don't tell them? If you don't say, hey, that's a good idea. Hey, that's a wonderful question. You did a really good job there. What about this idea, embarrassing them in public? In our home, it was a joke. And I wanted to be careful, and yet it was a joke in our home. I would use the kids as public illustrations at times. With their permission or their awareness that it was coming. If they still didn't want it, but it, fit, it was like, okay, we're gone. But if it's not going to be a real problem, I wish you wouldn't, but, you know, it's okay. And we had that one child, you can use it, but never say my name. And so do you remember the years when we were child raising, I called the one child, the unnamed child. I used it, did anybody know who it was? It was always Shelly. It was always Shelly, absolutely, absolutely. So the rest of the family calls her the unnamed child to this day. Overreactions, not list. Do parents do this? Do parents lecture, 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 and not listen? All the time, people. In dealing with the teens in our church who come and talk, this is it. This is where I'm always getting lectured, and I can't ask, if I ask a question, there's an overreaction. Yeah, some, as somebody illustrated, um, you know, how do we know that the Bible's true? How do you know your Bible's true? We've taught you your entire life. What, what's the matter with you? It's a, it's a really honest question. That really, they're trying to understand the foundation of their faith so they can give an answer to people who ask. What's wrong with them asking? How do we know our Bible's true? How do we know there really is a God? They may be searching for legitimate answers. I'll, I'll give you one that we're having more and more of, okay? Why is abortion wrong? And you can say, what? Don't you? But understand, where are the kids coming from anymore? How much do they hear about this? How, how much is it presented as good? So they have to, in their mind, they have to work this through. Okay, everybody's saying this. Everybody's saying this. Even other believers that I know, they're saying this. Why, why is it so wrong? Isn't that a legitimate question to ask and to f- secure your faith? Isn't it a legitimate question? And I think it's, a, it's goofy. I really do. But we have to. Isn't it a legitimate question to ask right now and to explain, how do we know transgenderism is wrong? How do we know that? Because they're getting bombarded with it being right. And they need to be founded and understand, here's why. You know, so instruct without belittling. Does that make sense? No, yes? And I'm not saying we're, please don't, do not, I'm not advocating abortion, transgenderism, any of that. And for you parents who are raising teens, God bless you. You have it far worse than we did when we were raising teens with these issues. But when you explain it, make sure you're explaining things from a biblical foundation without belittling them for asking. But firmly and with conviction, explain the Word of God and give them the truth of the Word of God to found them, lacking any freedoms, tearing down others they like. 
Um, I don't know if you've you experienced this, any of you. I, I, I've counseled people who have experienced this. They did not appreciate... They, they were uh, one, one illustration stands out in my mind, one true episode. They really loved their grandparents. The children, the, the team that came and talked one time, really, really loved the grandparents. But one of the parents, who was the in-law, they didn't like the grandparents, and they were somewhat jealous of the grandparents having such an, a, a, an affinity with their kid. So they would typically find fault with the in-laws over and over and over again, so as to seem like protecting their own emotional relationship with their child. It doesn't work. If that child really loves those grandparents, and you're attacking those in-laws, what, what could the child become? Resentful towards you. And, and re resent your criticizing their loved one that you don't really like. And I know I'm getting really, really pointed here in some of these applications. But think through some of these things. Acting like the perfect parent. Did your parents do this? When we were young, we had to walk 10 miles to school. Uphill, both ways, and it was 10 feet of snow from September to July. And they didn't have fire in the schools. We had to start the fire. And the, what we had to do was get that frozen bucket of water there to protect it. The fire got away and, and all the exaggerations. Did you ever have that? Your parents never did that? Okay, let me ask you this. When parents do that kind of stuff, or grandparents do it, what do you think? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Modern-day parents? Modern-day parents? You think that I'm tough on you. You should have been in the home I was raised in. If we looked cross-eyed, we were locked in a room for 10 days straight. So my discipline of you is no problem. And it's exaggerated. And after a while, does that wear thin? Can you imagine it wearing thin on people? You can't. <laughs> okay. It does. Trust me, I've been dealing with some people who are struggling with that. Even in our church. They're tired of it. They don't want to hear all the stories of how awful your life was. We should be talking about grace how God has changed, and, and not belittling, not comparing. So cheer the kids on. Cheer the kids on. Be a promoter. There's another area that I want to get to, and it's a pattern, and I'm not going to get far. But I, let, me, let me just launch into it. Does the Bible ever have a verse, parents, be a pattern for your children? What, what do you mean by Deuteronomy 6? Okay. 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 So we're giving them the Word of God all the time. I think that's, that's here. And we're going to bring that into this discussion. Let me give you a, 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 um, a thought pattern that flows through Scripture. Okay. Let, let's broaden it from families. Does, does the Scriptures employ, encourage providing a good pattern, a good example? Does it ever? Okay, let's start off. Did Jesus ever give work on the idea we need a pattern? 
I'm going to give you a pattern. Prayer. Prayer. Okay. How so? I give you a pattern. I'm not giving you a prayer. I'm giving you a pattern. Okay. And Jesus understood we need, we people, we need examples. Yes? Does that make sense? That's all I'm getting at. Do we need examples or patterns? Okay. Jesus knew this. Jesus did this on more than one occasion. Do you remember how Jesus did this? And the Bible even says, leaving us an example that we should follow. We need that. We need to know how to respond in trials. Jesus gave us a pattern. God says pattern is important for people. How about this? I have given you an example that you should do as I have done. Do you remember what that setting is? John 13? What did you say, Jay? Yeah, yeah. It's the Last Supper. And he washes the feet, and then he gets up and he says, you see what I have done? I've given you an example. And the idea is to do these things, more than just foot washing, but this whole idea of humility. Jesus does that as well. And he says, okay, when it comes to serving and having a servant's attitude, whosoever you will be chief, it needs to be servant. For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to give his life for many. The point is, Jesus understood the value of a good pattern. Did, did that continue in the New Testament? Yeah. We flip over to the epistles, and Paul writes these, Be ye followers of me as I am following Christ. Did he know the importance of clergy giving a pattern to other Christians? And is that true yet today? Do we need patterns? Good examples. Yeah, in fact, he goes on and he says, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being examples to the flock. He's talking in this passage to who in particular? The pastors. The pastors. He develops that even in Titus where he says, he's, he's writing to Titus and he's saying, Titus, in all things show yourself a pattern of good works in doctrine showing uncorruptness, gravity, sincerity, sound speech. My point is, is the Bible lay out the philosophy, the aspect of we need to provide good patterns at different levels? Yes. It is, a, it is a biblical concept. So even though it may not say, parents, thou shalt be a good example, is there an unwritten concept in Scripture you need to be a good example? The answer is yes. In fact, it's, it's hinted at very strongly where it says, train up a child in the way he should go. What word in here implies providing a pattern? Train. Train, point, guide the way, or to lead. There's another text. Bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. What word implies you've got to give example? What words? Bring them up. Bring them up is that same idea. You point the way you lead towards. So the question here, as far as providing a pattern, has to be... What, what is important that I provide an example for? What pattern, what must I model before my kids? I am called to be a model. I am called to be an example. In what ways or what areas? Hmm. Can you think of several right off the top of your head? I want you to do this. 
Take this, think about it tomorrow in your devotions, and write down. I wrote down 13 areas, not just saying in all things. I wrote down 13 specific areas that come to my mind that we had thought through, talked through, that we, when we were raising kids, we thought these were very, very important. And I, I mean, every day we have to be a model. And, and, but some very specific aspects of what do I want to model for my kids. And then we'll talk about next week. Father, thank you. Thank you for these folk. Thank you for their input. Thank you for the conversations that we've had to this point this evening. Help us to have good fellowship and just be a blessing one to another. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.